Welcome to Flourishing in Medicine. Welcome back to Flourishing in Medicine. If you're returning, Flourishing in Medicine from Surviving to Thriving. I'm your host, Dr. Mick Krasner, and this podcast is being produced by MPRO, a medical professional liability insurance carrier headquartered in New York State, dedicated to protecting New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania's physicians, healthcare facilities, and healthcare providers. This podcast is part of MPRO's forward-thinking, peer-support activities. In this podcast, we strive to explore ways health professionals, physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs, mental health providers, therapists, and others can flourish in the complex and challenging world of healthcare. I'm excited to share with you my conversation today with the curious, multi-talented, and incredibly creative Dr. Jillian Horton a general internist who has served in multiple leadership positions at University of Manitoba's Max Rady College of Medicine in Winnipeg. These have included the inaugural director of the college's and faculty of health sciences program in physician and learner wellness, director of the Allen Class Health Humanities Program, and associate chair of the Department of Internal Medicine. She has also served as the associate dean of undergraduate student affairs at the Medical College, and she has won numerous awards for mentorship, professionalism, and teaching. There's a lot more to Dr. Horton than that part of her bio. She's also an accomplished musician. Please look up her music on YouTube. And writer. Among her many projects is an advice column that she pens called Ask Dr. Horton, and a podcast called MedLife with Dr. Horton for the Canadian Medical Association Journal, where she explores the emotions, unanswered questions, and complexities of the human side of medicine, inviting and shaping national conversations on meaning, purpose, and humanity in medical practice. She contributes regularly to the Los Angeles Times, as well as other prominent newspapers. She's the recipient of the AFMC Gold Humanism Award and lecture that was created in 2019, 2018, sorry, to emphasize, reinforce, and elevate the ideals of humanism and patient-centered care within the healthcare community in Canada. She co-authored a poignant graphic novel, Medicine, which focuses on the intense challenges of a medical student. And her latest book, a Canadian bestseller, we Are All Perfectly Fine is a memoir about mindfulness and reclaiming our full humanity and a call to reimagining medical education. I encourage all of you to read this beautifully written, highly personal, provocative, humbling, and at times shocking look into bringing oneself completely to the serving of others within the medical profession. This conversation was simply a joy for me, although as you listen to it, I hesitate to use that word, yet it truly was. We had a wide-ranging conversation, and now our conversation with Dr. Jillian Horton, sharing stories of how the resiliency of her family contributed to her choice of medicine as a profession and vocation. She also speaks of how the character of Hawkeye Pierce in the TV series MASH and the persona of Alan Alda has been a blueprint for her survival. She challenges the pursuit of joy in medicine, or rather has us examine deeply what is meant by joy and how we must, must first attend to foundational needs among the hierarchy found in living this human experience. She explores how relativism can often discount the needs for humanism and meeting each person where they are in the medical encounter. The power of deep listening, the centrality of presence are messages she lives and offers as gifts for us to explore as we work towards flourishing in medicine. Thanks for joining us on this podcast, Flourishing in Medicine, of which you have personal connection with, of course. And what I like to do, I'm making a habit in this new podcast of kind of asking guests a similar question, each of them just kind of capture their history. And that question has to do with my experiences in healthcare as an educator and in other ways with students, with clinicians, teachers, academics, and others. And I've been really impressed by the unique narratives about why they went into 
the health professions. Now, you've written partly about this. Um, sometimes they sh share stories of early or profound experiences with health and illness their own or someone close to them, uh, often very poignantly. So I'd just like to allow our listeners to hear a little bit about your path. You know, what has kind of, uh, what were some of those really early experiences that sort of created that uh, inspiration for you to uh, enter the health profession to become a physician and healer, we could say. Well, it is so lovely to be here talking with you today, Mick. You know, I'm such a fan of your work. It's had such um, a transformative impact on my own life. And I think what you are asking me to talk about right now is a place where I also love to start when I talk to physicians, which is my origin story. So for me, I grew up in a small town in the Canadian prairies with two very disabled siblings. And in particular, my experience bearing witness to the development and encounters with the healthcare system of my oldest sister, her name was Wendy, had an absolutely formative impact on me and I think is unequivocally the root of my why, the why I became a doctor. So there were some really good experiences that I bore witness to. You know, my sister was diagnosed with a brain tumor when she was six by a very, very compassionate physician who sort of took on a almost mythologic proportions in the lore of our family history. And this, by the way, was before I was even born. But uh, unfortunately, our encounters with the medical system also included dealing with a lot of people who were not kind, who were not compassionate, who were perhaps what we consider to be technically skilled, but a human piece was absolutely missing. And what I could not understand and struggled with as I grew up and watched my parents and my sister and the rest of my family deal with the fallout of that lack of you know, compassion and engagement and humanity was just a profound kind of vicarious trauma and anger and not really understanding why when those humanizing aspects of dealing with patients and supporting patients and just simply connecting with people, you know, why people couldn't deliver that as well. I think I understood immediately that if you weren't meeting people's human needs in some basic way, you actually weren't providing excellent care. And so that became for me the basis of, you know, my just compulsion, I think, to become a physician. It wasn't even a choice. There were other things I dreamed of doing with my life and wanted to do. And some of them I've come back to later. But I just felt that knowing what I knew and understanding that so viscerally, it would not have been true to myself to not choose a life where I could use those experiences somehow for the better. And that really laid the groundwork for me to become a physician and also a medical educator. Thank you. You know, we as healers, physicians, other health professionals share so much of this origin story. Interestingly enough, I have the brother closest to me, there's six of us, also had a um, degenerative neurologic disease that eventually took his life and really informed also my why in a very profound way. So I I knew that about your story. I'm not sure if I ever shared that about my uh, story as well, but of course, mm. not surprised, Jillian, that that, yeah. that has us connected as it mm -hmm. has us connect to so many others. You know, this those are very difficult and challenging experiences, both having that in your family, but also um, having encounters with the health care system that were less than optimal. And you could see that writ large in your own personal experience uh, in that way that you describe. But if we flip that around, how, do, how does this formative origin story experience, those that you just described, contribute to flourishing, to your flourishing? And how do these, if we generalize, can contribute to the flourishing of others of our health profession? Well, I think... And you know this, Mick, from your own work, and it's one of the messages that you reinforce so constantly in your own teaching and um, kind of the, the speaking and, and work that you do with physicians. But I think we know, and the literature tells us very clearly, not just in medicine, but in 
other things across the board. If we can stay connected to our why, if we can not just know it for ourselves, but kind of constantly renew our vows to it and see it showing up in our day-to-day work, both the work that we find the most meaningful, but also even things that it's a little harder for us to tease out the relationship between what we're doing right now and what our why is, and we have to work a little bit to find it. You know, we know that that helps us maintain some immunity against burnout. And I think it also helps us to deal with the feelings of helplessness and hopelessness that we so often encounter when we are encumbered by things like the absurd administrative burden and, you know, certain things that you in the United States have to deal with that I in Canada uh, don't have to deal with, like volumes and volumes and volumes of insurance paperwork and, and other considerations like that. So retaining that connection and making that a conscious part of our medical practice of our personal practice and something we articulate to other people and kind of explore from different angles. You know, I think writing about these things is also incredibly helpful because it allows us to go through a process of kind of emotional consolidation and remind ourselves of things that we've really forgotten or stories that we don't typically share in a medical forum. You know, you reminded me, I I host a a a series for the Royal College where one of the things that I get to do is talk to uh, fellows of the Royal College about their their why and interesting experiences that they've had that have really shaped who they are. And, you know, one of my conversations recently was talking to a fellow physician about uh, when I was giving a grand rounds at a large Canadian hospital a few months back. And afterwards, uh, somebody shared in a public forum, so it's not a confidential story, but they shared that, you know, they too had grown up with a really disabled sibling. And when they tried to share that story years ago as their why, I think it was when they were applying to medical school, they were told by a mentor, don't ever do that again. That's your personal life that has no place here. And again, I think there's a powerful message for us, right? That when we divorce the personal, who we are, which is so often where those deep and profound whys are located, again, we actually really jeopardize ourselves. We kind of toss the thing aside that we potentially need the most in order to stay in this very high pressure marathon of a job. Yeah. So you just reminded me that I'm thinking about what's become increasingly clear is how compassion and our decision, say, as health professionals to help care for others uh, is an imperative as a species, uh, something that's reinforced uh, very profoundly in terms of our physiology and something that is so completely intertwined with our survival that it's very clear that someone articulating that they had that experience and it informed why they want to help others would uh, want to be in the health professions. You, so you kind of have connected the dots a little bit with our the connection of your why with joy and meaning. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could talk more about what do we mean by joy in the work that we do? What do we mean by meaning? And what's the importance of it? You know, after all, we have jobs, we have, you know, jobs that the public respect in general, for the most part, we get paid reasonably well, et cetera, et cetera. But why is our meaning and joy important? And what and what do we mean by it? What do you mean by it? So, you know, joy in medicine, I think, is a really interesting concept. And I think joy is actually a triggering word right now for a lot of physicians and not in a good way. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Because when you think about um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and as we look at, you know, kind of what the base of that pyramid is, what we need in order to experience fulfillment and all these other kind of things that we are programmed to strive for as a species. You know, at the very top of that pyramid are things like self-efficacy and, you know, feeling meaning in our work, for example, is is kind of clustered in there. But at the base is psychological safety um, and physical safety, right? Physical safety being the very, the very core piece of that pyramid. And, you know, I actually think this is a problem with this conversation right now. I I absolutely love the work on joy in medicine and, and the movement is critically important. But I think it's really hard to talk to people about finding joy in their work when they don't have 
physical safety, when they're worried about, you know, physically being uh, injured in their workplace, when they're profoundly sleep deprived, when they have not had a vacation in eight months, when they don't work for psychologically safe leadership. And so I actually find to some degree at this particular moment in time, I don't really want to talk about joy in medicine. And it isn't because I don't experience joy in medicine or because I don't believe it's an absolutely worthwhile goal. I worry, I don't know if you saw, Mick, there was a piece I wrote for the Los Angeles Times a couple of years ago that got a lot of traction. And it was about a concept I called muffin rage. And the idea behind muffin rage was it was an experience that I had as a resident and walked into the hospital one day. I see a big banner, uh, resident appreciation day, and there's a plate of muffins on the table. And it's 7 a.m. and I'm reaching out for a muffin and suddenly as I go to mindlessly take this muffin, I'm overcome with a feeling of rage. Like I want to use the muffin to, you know, physically damage the building that I'm in. And I think what I remember looking back at that is this just feeling of indignation, but also of abandonment, you know, thinking, I don't need a muffin. I need to sleep. I need to see my family who were a thousand miles away, who I hadn't seen in six or seven months. And my sister at that time, I think, was critically ill and in and out of the ICU. I probably needed, you know, kind of counseling, therapeutic support. I, I didn't really feel that I was working in an environment where my uh, workload was commensurate with, you know, the skills that I had as a resident. And so, again, there's this mismatch, right, that we experience when we talk about some of these things and the basic needs aren't acknowledged first. And I think we're seeing that time and time and time again, when we look at how healthcare workers are responding to a lot of the initiatives or, or conversations around these issues, especially, you know, events to show appreciation. And I think there's actually a, a strong case to be made that, you know, conversations about joy in medicine also feel that they are missing the mark for a lot of folks, because again, they're not coming from, you know, it's not you and me sitting uh, on a couch talking privately, dealing with our own, you know, making the choice to have that conversation. It's our organization, it, you know, when we, of course, the literature tells us unequivocally that organizational factors are the primary drivers of burnout, period, full stop, without a caveat, right? That resilience, individual resilience and, and the meaning that we find in our work, I mean, mission alignment kind of has some overlap with the organization there. But, you know, that the personal piece is small. So I just think that is important grounding that when organizations are, are leading these conversations or when they're coming kind of from within institutions, that we understand there's almost like a trauma-informed piece, right, that we get why a lot of people don't want to sit and have that conversation with us. And we think they're being obstreperous and we think they're being difficult and we think they're just burnt out and need to, you know, learn mindfulness. But in fact, the problem is what we're sometimes telling people that we're, what it feels like we're not acknowledging or seeing when we go to that place. So kind of a, um, not meant to be a difficult answer, but it's, it, you know, one of the reasons why right now I almost question whether first we we need to get all that other stuff out of the way. And I think it's helpful because then people kind of go, okay, you, you know where I'm coming from. You get this. Maybe now we can talk about, you know, the why, but yeah, just uh, just an observation. I've made speaking to groups quite a, quite a bit over the last few years. Joy is a joy is a trigger word. <laughs> I, I agree. As is burnout. As is resilience. Uh, yeah. And especially when it's laid upon our us as our responsibility mm -hmm. individually to yeah. to obtain it. You know, I think uh, Aristotle. I think had a better word for it. Uh, what's called eudaimonia. And if you look at that, the root of that word within that word daemon also related to demons so it's a deeper deeper sense of flourishing that's why actually we were calling this podcast flourishing in medicine not joy in medicine because mm -hmm. even when uh even with those needs that haven't been completely addressed especially the the psychological and physical safety that you talk about um we can still kind of work towards some way of flourishing because we need it and our patients need it uh as well and I, I wanted to use this as a as a way of segueing into a discussion about again what what I had commented on earlier in one of your prior uh, reflections the imperative as a social species to care for others. You have been personally in, inspired by the character of Dr. Hawkeye Pierce in mm -hmm. Mash in the TV series Mash, and more recently in the persona of Alden Alda the actor who played uh, Hawkeye 
And in fact, you've been quoted as saying that MASH gave you the blueprint for survival. And I just would like you to tell us a little bit about that. If you think about just MASH, this is a group of army physicians caring for no matter where they come from, the wounded. And with humor and lightness and with actually a, a depth, a, a eudaimonic uh, eye toward what's really meaning uh, hmm. meaningful for them. So go, yeah, please take us on that journey a little bit, how that became a blueprint for survival for you. You know, it's interesting, Nick, looking back at my childhood, um, I think one of the ways that my family coped with the incredible adversity that, you know, was part of day-to-day -day life was with humor. And I often think back to, you know, it's hard for me actually to untangle my earliest memories kind of around the age of nine or 10. And, you know, thinking about uh, late at night, my I, one sister who, um, like me, had been, you know, spared these, these major health issues and late at night would sneak into her room and we'd watch after my parents had gone to bed, we'd watch little reruns of MASH. And I think one of the things I was always struck by was the, you know, the parallels, how these people in the midst of these really intense emotional circumstances being surrounded by suffering and, you know, obviously on a totally different scale than the microcosm that I lived at home. But you know, I was always struck by kind of the rawness of it, um, including just how humor carried the day. And often, you know, loving humor, compassionate humor, sometimes shocking humor, things that people didn't expect. And I know that kind of idea that retaining our our spirit, retaining that spark of, um, see, I almost found myself using the word joy, that even, even in the worst moments, that if we could find that, you know, kind of hold on to that little burning candle, that that was important. Um, and that was certainly a huge part, I know, of how our family coped with everything that we experienced. And I also think you know, like so many of us, I mean, as you know, I've written uh, quite a bit about this. I had this delightful experience of writing a piece in the LA Times almost exactly three years ago that went viral, that ended up kind of connecting me to Alan Alda. We were on Inside Edition together and we, um, I had the thrill of being on his podcast and talking about my book. And then I actually more recently did a documentary on this for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, a one-hour radio documentary, looking at how, you know, that love of kind of mash had shaped my perception of what it was going to mean to have a life in medicine. And that included some of those positive things that you say, you know, coming together kind of as the, the company, you know, the, the team-based aspect of it. If you think of our years as residents, I, many of us would use the words in the trenches to describe what we went through. And we thought of ourselves as kind of being on this front line and being in battle and being part of the core, pursuing a mission. There was actually, even if we maybe didn't think of it this way. There was a really deep sense of kind of meaning and, and team identity um, during the best moments of that. And again, when I think of, you know, not just how MASH shaped that concept for me, but interestingly, learning about this in particular for this um, radio documentary, you know, kind of how concepts of 19th century war sort of shaped medical education as well. There's all kinds of fascinating stuff there when we look at what the groundwork was for you know, how our training became influenced by some of those models. And of course, were needed medics and, and sophisticated medicine in order to continue to carry on and be successful. But I think at the end of the day, how that show influenced me, the positive piece and how uh, that character of Hawkeye influenced me was just the idea that we can resist, you know, we don't have to become inhumane, that systems actually often do exist with a structural intent to dehumanize us and that we don't have to give into that you know that resistance is sort of one of the most powerful things that we can nurture inside of ourselves and i think one of the ways that we continue to demonstrate resistance and keep it alive in ourselves is is through a kind of humor that is very deeply connected to something something personal that can be hard to articulate but we all we all know it when we feel it Thank you. Yes, I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, in many ways, you point as you point out, that show um, illustrated and showed us the universality of suffering in a certain mm -hmm. way, how it really knows no borders. It isn't just soldiers, it's civilians. We're all in this on this planet together and have to figure out a way to to live live together. 
Yet for yourself, you describe uh, in your writings and in your speaking about how you have had to learn that your suffering also mattered. You've spoken about the process of developing an understanding of the universality of suffering, and it's allowed you to address your own suffering as something valid uh, as well as useful. Maybe you can talk to us a little bit about you know, how realizing however small or large one's own individual suffering, how, how it's valid, important, and also mm -hmm. becomes a crucible out of which one can, you know, translate into healing for others. I think, Mick, we as physicians have a tendency to devalue our own suffering. And there are lots of reasons for that. You know, for me, when I look at my Again, my personal life, I think growing up with siblings with profound illnesses, you know, subconsciously in sort of the early formative years, you can come to believe that there is a hierarchy of suffering. You know, you can come to believe that the only problem that is really a problem is a very dramatic thing like a brain tumor or a degenerative neurologic illness and everything else is just you complaining and, uh, you know, not being grateful enough for not having those problems. I think we unconsciously can come into medicine with a lot of stories like that scripted in the back of our minds and we're not even aware of them. So that I think is part one. But part two, you know, if you think of how we are indoctrinated in medicine, on one hand, we sort of say, well, we take all problems seriously, but actually we don't. There's totally a, a ranking, you know, that I think, again, we just sort of accept during medical school that some people's problems, you know, we see preceptors modeling this behavior. We see our teachers kind of saying, gee, that person just needs to toughen up or this is a this is a functional problem. It's a, not worth our time. It's not organic. It doesn't have a biomarker. And so we kind of fall in line with some of that, too. And then we also engage in, Bertie Brown, of course, talks about comparative suffering, but we also engage in a lot of physician-centered framing. And so, you know, physician-centered framing, basically, as, as you know, as it's talked about in the literature, is we have one data set. So somebody, you know, comes in with their symptoms could be pancreatic cancer, and we investigate them, and we find that they don't have pancreatic cancer, but they have, um, you know, some other disorder that we don't deem, uh, that we think they dodged this great bullet, and in fact, we diagnose them with a chronic illness. So, you know, great example of that. And the example that uh, uh, I love from the literature is how we talk to people about having CLL versus having other forms of leukemia. So, you know, we all think of CLL as this more benign process, even though it's certainly not benign, but we think of it as, you know, winning the lottery. If you're going to have a leukemia, that's the good one. And, you know, this is nutty, right? Like this is actually, again, looking at the data set of the worst thing, you know, gee, today my car's brakes failed and I drove into a brick wall. Well, I, I the other person that I heard of whose brakes failed drove over a cliff. So just be glad you didn't drive over a cliff. But, you know, again, how does that relativity help the person in the moment when they're dealing with the multiple injuries sustained driving into the brick wall? So this, you know, again, is another interesting thing that we we use data sets that we have been drilled into us from day one. We accept those scripts. We think about people's experience of suffering, not from the perspective of what it's like to live with the particular set of symptoms, diseases, or experiences that that person is living with. And instead we think of it as, well, it's not the absolute worst thing. And it's just a, it's something that we're not even aware that happens to us. And, you know, interesting in the literature, when we look at, um, Tate Shanafelt has done beautiful work on this um, in, in his life as a hematologist, not, uh, not in his life as a world expert on physician health, that when we use phrases like, you know, you have the good leukemia. If I could pick a leukemia, I'd have the one that you have. Don't worry about your leukemia. That actually patients whose physicians use those phrases have a worse quality of life than mm -hmm. patients whose physicians do not use those phrases. So again, this relationship, it, it's actually such a lovely illustration of how what we say actually then can go on to infect our patients, right? And have an impact to, to be experienced as minimizing, as invalidating. So we do that 
unknowingly. We do that with, you know, we think good intentions. We're trying to be helpful, but the effect is the absolute opposite of the effect that we want to achieve. And I would argue that we do that same thing to ourselves day after day after day. You know, we we deal with our own um, physical ailments, our own emotional and, and mental suffering or whatever else is happening in our lives. And we say, well, gee, it's not as bad as what I saw on the word today. So what's my problem? Why can't I just, you know, suck it up and deal with this? And we um, we miss a lot of opportunities in those moments um, to improve our own quality of life. And I think just to go back to one of the other things that you said um, is the banality of suffering. You know, again, we can use this as something to minimize our own experiences to say, who cares about my suffering? It doesn't matter. Versus to say, you know, the experience is universal. What's different is the details, you know, so sort of the sorting, the discernment, you know, we get really caught up in the details of our own experiences because we know them so intimately and they're so important to us. But actually, again, when we zoom out, if we can put the details aside, what we can see is that undercurrent of pulsing the experience, the suffering, what it feels like to suffer, what we know to be true about just what it's like to be in those moments. And I think when we can really you know, kind of have beginner's mind about that, kind of allow ourselves to look at that experience without judging it. It's when there is the possibility, I think, for all of us for tremendous healing, actually paradoxically be free of that load because we are able to divorce a little bit from all the particulars and say, my brother, my sister who practices next to me, I don't mean my literal brother and sister. I mean, all of us in, in the pursuit of the work we do, we are all dealing with something. And instead of saying, well, we're all dealing with it, therefore it doesn't matter. We're all dealing for it with it. Therefore we are all here together in this place to sort of comfort and console each other. And it, it just changes. It's, it's just an entire shift in our emotional and cognitive stance in terms of how we see ourselves, how we see other people. And for me, I think it's opened up the most interesting chapter of my life as a clinician, um, as a person, as a writer, as a teacher. I often say I'm grateful that I lived long enough for that to happen because um, it's when we get to experience that one of the most important reorientations, I think, is, you know, we see our experiences in a new light that's actually much more interesting than the old light because it's so universal. Yeah, very well said. I was just thinking about that way we use that relativism and how it can affect one's experience of their own suffering. And, you know, I had the, I had the good fortune in 12th grade of being called down to the office. I thought I was in trouble, but I was actually called into the library just to have a conversation with a few other students with the author, uh, James Baldwin. And it reminds me about James Baldwin. He had a statement, which I'll paraphrase, something like, our suffering isn't what separates us, our suffering is our bridge that connects mm -hmm. us. I just think you've articulated that in a very real way and that let's leave relativism behind and let's just address what's present, what's here. I wanted to just shift a little bit. We have a few more questions I'd like to ask. The first is, you know, I'm just, always been amazed and just full of joy, I must say, even though we're going to hold that word in contempt a little bit, <laughs> with, with just knowing you and having you as a, as a colleague and as a friend. You have many talents. You're trained and accomplished musician, a skilled and gifted writer, an engaging and interesting speaker, not to mention you're, you're pretty funny uh, and witty. <laughs> and this may sound like an odd question, and maybe a non sequitur, but I'd like you to just go with it. Why? Why? <laughs> Why am I that way? Um, well, you know, if we go back to that origin story, there there are a couple of key pieces, I think, you know, and, and the first thing is I learned growing up in my family of origin, the power of humor. You know, I talk about seeing it on MASH and I talk about how we used it to cope, but I learned that, you know, this surprise element, um, if, you know, you could be having the absolute worst, most difficult day. And I mean, my sister's uh, physical disabilities were so profound and her suffering was so great. And, you know, the greatness of her suffering, I think, was only matched by the absolute amazing nature of her personality and her hilarity and kind of the just, you know, the incredible intactness of her person, you know, so you could be having the absolute worst 
day and and just pulling your hair out and wishing you'd literally never been born. And then, you know, she would say something that was so absurd and so funny that you would just fall to the ground laughing until the point of tears. And, you know, a ray of sunshine would come out again. And in that moment, you just felt like there'd been a reprieve um, of, of something. And, you know, for me, that feeling of, you know, the urgency of humor, but also, you know, the urgency of relieving suffering, of finding something in that moment to a way to feel better, whether it was for you, whether it was for someone else, and that being the most critical, you know, thing in the world, that laid all of that groundwork, you know, and I I think for me, there are other ways that I explore that same challenge. I explored it in music. You know, music is a way that we try to alleviate, whether it's through, you know, songwriting or or performing. It's a way that we try to eliminate suffering and also experience that same kind of catharsis. And writing, you know, for me, my writing is just intimately connected to all of those things too. I'm often going back and exploring some of those early experiences from different angles. And as you know, my book was, you know, very much about, I think, finally putting a lot of those things as much as we can ever put them, you know, to rest, you know, finally hitting a place of peace in my life with some of those early experiences. But I also think, you know, there is a peace uh, because I, I've had a, a pattern in my life of just attacking things, right, which I think is very common to physicians. We don't just become runners. We have to do the Iron Man. Uh, we don't just play piano. We have to perform with a symphony or be in the, you know, Van Cliburn. Like, we're really in many cases, people who border on um, extremists in a lot of ways. And again, for me, where did that come from? I, For sure, it came from a home where I saw two of my siblings basically cut down in the prime of their life, never have the opportunity to do anything. Did I feel additional weight, I think, to compensate as a result of that? For sure, I did. Where did that come from? It just came from my life. Nobody, nobody put it on me, but it was circumstantial. So I think those are both of the whys, you know, and there's one that's maybe a little more uh, has a tendency to go from maladaptive adaptive to maladaptive, and that's the latter one, that extremism that really has to be managed. Uh, but the other one is is more positive, you know. Just I, I feel it when I'm in a room with a patient and they're in despair. I want to find the key that will will fit in that lock, and the lock is different for every single patient. That just I want that person to leave that encounter with me feeling a little bit better. And, you know, often, as you and I both know, um, that better isn't because of anything I've prescribed uh, or a diagnosis that I've made. It's through listening. It's through validating. It's through mirroring. It's through empathizing. It's through presence. And I don't think you or I could imagine what it would feel like to be a doctor and not to be able to do that. I think, again, it, it ties into some of this lack of connectivity that people feel, you know, we, we do these difficult jobs for 16 hours a day and you go home and you wonder why you feel empty. It's because in some cases, there are many other factors, administrative burden, all these other things that we've talked about, organizational dysfunction, but for sure, for sure, for sure. One of the direct mechanisms of, you know, being divorced from that, having that most powerful therapeutic tool taken away from us is not being able to be present, not, you know, even having those short little intervals of time to make those connections, but even more importantly, not having the orientation, having that orientation taken away from you, invalidated, or just because it's been so long, no longer knowing how to do that. And so I think for sure, when we're talking about older clinicians, we have to restore that for people. They they have to relearn it. When you've had a stroke, neuroplasticity tells us, you know, your brain can learn again. Maybe it's going to be another part of your brain. But I, I know with all your years of experience in this too, Mick, you've, you've seen people relearn those skills, right? That they've kind of forgotten parts of their, one of their therapeutic modalities that they've abandoned. And you can, again, not suggesting it's easy, not suggesting there are not huge organizational and systemic factors that make it really, really difficult. But this is part of where we can reclaim some of our autonomy, some of our why, and, you know, restore a feeling of a locus of control. So Jillian, yeah. um, there, there's a number of ways in which our listeners can connect with you and your work, and you've been involved in a number of different uh, speaking engagements, podcasts. Can you share a couple of them that our listeners might be interested in? 
So I have a few different projects that are ongoing and some that were capsule projects that live online. I did a series called MedLife with Dr. Horton for the Canadian Medical Association Journal that lasted for just over a year. If folks are interested in that uh, series, they can just uh, Google and find a number of conversations with people like Victoria Sweet, Chris Sinsky, uh, Ron Epstein was part of that series, Tate Shanafelt, uh, really just trying to drill down into core concepts, building literacy around physician health and wellness from a number of different perspectives. I have a series that is running right now for the, for the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. It's called um, Conversations with Jillian. And this is just a really lovely little project that the Royal College asked me to co-develop with them, talking to our members about you know, interesting and very humanizing life experiences that they've had that inform their practice or have shaped the way that they see the practice of medicine. So launched that uh, series with a conversation that is still one of the most important conversations that I've ever had with a dear friend, a colleague that I trained with who at the time was dying of a glioblastoma. And, you know, those conversations, I think, really allow us to tap in from different angles into the why. And then there's a series that I host that's ongoing, that is really one of my joy projects at the it is at the National Arts Center in Ottawa. It's a series called, called Arts, Medicine, Life. And we have five lectures there in Ottawa um, every year, and it is released in podcasts. And in that series, I get to talk to just some of the most interesting people I have ever met. So there's some really notable conversations there that I think listeners might enjoy. One is with an incredible Canadian, Haley Wickenheiser, four-time Olympic gold medalist, uh, considered the woman's, uh, the greatest hockey player in women's hockey of all time. And some Americans might dispute that, but in Canada, that's what we call her. And Haley has actually subsequently uh, gone into medicine. She's just finishing her third year in emergency medicine residency, just an absolutely incredible person with a phenomenally interesting perspective on what excellence in medicine really means. Conversation with Kate Bowler recently, author of Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, that just really shed a lot of light for me on, you know, the experiences that we can inadvertently create for patients in terms of trauma by not bringing our whole selves to medicine. Um, so just lots of conversations. Again, we we talk to writers, so we talk to well-known uh, physicians. I talk to a lot of physician writers as well. But that series for me has just been a constant thread these last few years of going back and looking you know, at that why from different perspectives. And then people are, can always find my writing in the United States. Most of it appears in the Los Angeles Times, uh, as well as other outlets by syndication in the U.S., and then a number of Canadian uh, news outlets that I have the, the privilege and the joy of writing for pretty regularly. And often what I write about is medical culture, you know, kind of what it's like for us, our emotional lives, I think, as as physicians. So I feel very, very, very privileged and and overjoyed to get to kind of peel back the curtain and and give non-healthcare workers a bit of a peek into our inner lives, which I think sometimes are far more complicated than even we necessarily know. That's great. We're going to um, include all that in the show notes. So thank you for going over that. Uh, the, okay, fi the final uh, thing I'd like to ask is kind of a little imaginary exercise, imagination exercise. Uh, <laughs> it, it came about with something that you shared about MASH and also a prior uh, podcast interview we had where this physician talked about as a kindergarten student wearing this white coat that was too long and then you know feeling what it may be what her future self may be so if you can imagine yourself on the set of mash <laughs> in, in the midst of its filming and you put on the uniform of dr hawkeye pierce imagine what that what is the feelings the the even physical somatic sensations and even what's happening in your mind as you don that persona um, that has been so inspiring to you as a physician? I'm going to answer that question in a bit of a different way, because I think I kind of got to live that feeling, Mick, during the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even as a clinician specifically, about a year into the pandemic, not, not quite that long, you know, we kind of had a tipping point in Canada where, you know, it really became clear that 
some of our decisions locally were going to uh, cost hundreds of lives. You know, I had actually become kind of brave in stages in the months leading up to that. I'd, I'd had that mash piece, which sort of had taken on a life of its own. But really, you know, one day for me, I was asked to do an interview on um, national television about what was happening in my province. And, you know, until then, I'd always found reasons to say no. I'd always found reasons not to speak publicly about these things. You know, physicians don't find it all that easy, I think, historically to talk to media. And we often kind of keep out of that particular space. But finally, one day, I was so angry about what was happening to here. We had a weekend where almost 60 uh, senior citizens died in one care home in our province. And I just... Someone called me and said, will you do this interview? And I said, actually, I will. And in that moment and in the subsequent months um, and years of kind of advocating with colleagues here, you know, trying to stand up for vulnerable populations, for people who didn't have a voice and to speak out against private interests, I found myself, I think, feeling exactly the way that I might have imagined that you just described if I put on that coat and inhabited that personality. I I just suddenly understood who I was. And I suddenly understood that, you know, all the experiences that I'd had in my life advocating for my sister, all the years of, you know, being um, a bit of a a good expletive disturber, I think, in in medicine and an adaptive um, and and, uh, high functioning way, you know, suddenly I saw all of those things were preparation for this experience. and how each of those had contributed to being able now to live as myself in a in a public um, space, in a public way, um, as a public voice. And I think it's, you know, it's been, again, another totally unexpected iteration for me of my career, where you sort of learn another aspect of your own power. You know, my colleagues and I, the first, we organized a news conference here during a very low point that was actually covered and reported in the New York Times, a news conference uh, held by just a group of physicians on Zoom in Winnipeg, in Winnipeg, Manitoba. So, you know, you say to yourself, all this subversion, again, it has to be healthy, right? We have to have a deep sense of our why, make sure that we're not falling into, you know, sort of just narcissism or what I call narcissism, which is the combination of narcissism and activism. But really, why am I doing this? What am I standing up against? What's, you know, who around me will tell me if it's if it's too much, if it's damaging to me, etc. I, I think it's just kind of an amazing, another fascinating chapter for me of kind of what's happened in my own life. And again, along with a lot of other people, it's not just me, right? It's a movement, it's a collective. But the experience of going through that you know, did did Hawkeye lay uh, some of that groundwork um, for that to be possible? Yes. Did so many other pieces of my life lead me to this moment? Yes. And there's one other thing I want to say, you know, all the work um, that I did in those, you know, early years, but they're not that early, but, you know, years ago with you and Ron, when we first met, helps us to learn to tolerate the difficulty of those things, right? So we don't like negative feedback. We don't like criticism. We don't like being anything other than perfect as physicians. And we know when we step into the public space, especially with something as charged as COVID, we're going to get a lot of toxic stuff coming back at us. But when we have done the hard and difficult work, I sometimes talk about it as bracing ourselves first before we move into that public space, we're able to plant our roots and withstand it probably much more effectively than we ever would have imagined. So I often joke that, you know, training with the two of you and learning this work and then subsequently becoming a teacher of it was probably the best pre-pandemic work I could have done for the mental fortitude required to exist in that public space that anybody could ever have done. I, um, again, just one more curious development in, in my life where you sort of can't believe how things unfolded and yet here you are. <laughs> well, thank you. That's lovely. Uh, and I appreciate your your reflections. Thank you very much for listening. We will include a summary of today's podcast and links to Dr. Jillian Horton and other references that were discussed in the show notes. I'd like to conclude today's podcast with a practical exercise to help you flourish during your workday. The intention is for you to develop a toolbox of skills that you can draw upon to enhance purpose, 
meaning, and well-being. Given what you learned of Jillian's talents as a writer, a musician, a creative, this creative instinct for creativity is truly a human quality that we all share. And to, cult to cultivate it is to support our flourishing as unique individuals in our professions, having a motivation to enact compassion, to see the suffering of others, and take some action to relieve that suffering. Today's practice is both a reflection and a living action. I recommend spending two to three minutes from time to time engaged in this practice. So perhaps at the beginning or end of your workday, perhaps moments before entering your home at, at the end of your workday, the practice is simply to reflect on what you did that was compassionate during the day. Listening to patients, staff, colleagues. What did you do that recognized the difficulty of others? How did you resonate empathically? And then what action did you take, however small it could be, to do something to relieve that? Maybe just give advice. Maybe simply just recognizing common humanity and naming that. Perhaps even more powerfully, just simply offering your presence. And now as you are about to move into the next moment, setting your intention to recognize challenges you may encounter now in the next moments and set, set an intention to enact, even in the smallest way, compassion, something to help. I hope you found this podcast and this simple exercise useful to you and look forward to having you join us for our next episode of Flourishing in Medicine from Surviving to Thriving. For more information about MPRO, please visit www.myempro.com. And for more information about me and my work, please visit www.mickkrasnermd.com or www.mindfulpracticeinmedicine.com. Hope to see you next time. <music>